but we started our series for December last week with week number one of For Unto Us. Uh, and so let's just kind of recap where we are, all right? This is our Advent series. This is our December. And you might have seen the word Advent a lot around here, you know, maybe at Christmas time. You've seen it at Hobby Lobby and you've seen it all over everything else. And so you see the word Advent. All it means is the coming or the arrival. And so Advent, all it is is a fancy way of just celebrating the fact that Jesus has come. The fact that at Christmas that Jesus was born. And so I told you last week that my uh, kids and I and my wife, we are all in at Christmas. All right. We do it big. We do it all year long. All three kids have a little Christmas tree that they like to put up. Uh, And so that's just what we like to do. We sing songs in July. We start the carols already. We put lights up in September. It is a big deal for us. All right. If we could decorate for next year right now, we would. That's what we would do for Christmas time. And so we are all in. But I told you last week we are all in. So this is not a... A burn your tree, throw away your presents, and, you know, lights are for pagans type of Christmas service. All right, we have a hundred foot tall Christmas tree in the foyer. We love Christmas. We're going to do it big. We're going to eat, praise God. We're going to sing. We're going to have all these fun things. We're going to do it big this year. But I told you, we're going to kind of get on the same page and not be fooled by some of the things that are tried to sold to us. All right, some of the things that are tried to, I don't know, get underneath and given to us that aren't true about the season. And that is that Christmas has a unique advertisement that seems to come along with it every single year. And that's that this Christmas, this year, for whatever year it is, this will be the one that fixes everything. That this is the one where we'll wake up Christmas morning and all hurts will be healed and all relationships restored. And everything that went wrong in the year will somehow be made right. That this is the Christmas that your in-laws will treat you with respect. That all those cousins that are estranged will respect every opinion you have. That all will be made right on Christmas morning and the snow will fall. And we understand, right, that this is not the reality that we actually live in. And so if we're going to have this this tension at Christmas, if we're going to have this false advertisement, if I can call it something, at Christmas time, then we're going to have to put up a little bit of a fight together. And so here's what I'd like to do. This is what I'd like us to begin to realize, and that is that it's not a truth unto itself, this idea, but it's just a shadow of what reality actually is. And we talked about shadows, right? In this season, you see shadows of the fact that Jesus has come, that he was born. You see it in nativity sets that are set up on rooftops or maybe in malls or at your house. You see the shadow that Christ was born. You see the shadows that he is at work in the world today through relationships that are restored, through this hope that rises up in us in this season. There's just shadows of the idea that Christ is at work in the world today. But then we see the realities of some of the things we walk through of hurt hearts and relationships that are broken. And all of this works together then to cause a longing inside of us for the day that Christ will return. And so here at the Advent season, this is what we are doing through this series. We're looking and celebrating the fact that Jesus was born. We're celebrating the fact that he is at work. But man, we are setting our eyes and our hearts on the fact that he will return. That our eyes are set on eternity. That all things will be made right in him. And so as we begin to study that, last week we looked at week number one of God the Deliverer. We looked at through the gospel lens and through the story of the Exodus and the people of God in Egypt, in slavery. And we watched how God not only saw their predicament, not only heard their prayers, but God intervened on behalf of his people. And so we walk through that in the book of Exodus. We walk through this idea that God would deliver his people out of their bondage. But that the root cause of their slavery, the actual moral decay, the actual darkness and brokenness inside of them was still there. And how Old Testament, about half of it is the Israelites dealing with their rebellion, dealing with the the outpouring or the, sorry, the consequences of that rebellion. 
Half your Old Testament is them trying to, to deal with those consequences. And so the fact that they were still stuck. But honestly, that's what makes the Christmas story so beautiful. That yes, God freed them from their slavery in Egypt, but they weren't truly free. Because it only lasted a couple of chapters and they'd slip right back into it. And then it would, a king would come and would bring them back to serve God. And then they would fall right back into their moral decay and their darkness. But until Jesus came and actual true freedom was born, God didn't send Moses this time. God didn't just send a prophet or someone else. God sent his only son. That is the beauty of Christmas. To set us free from our sin, not from a pharaoh on the Nile, not some, from some slavery in Egypt, but to set us free from our sins. An actual freedom. That is the gospel we celebrate at Advent. That God himself came to set his people free. So week one, the deliverer. Week number two, I want to look at a different trait of God. Honestly, a character trait that comes into stark focus at Christmas time. That honestly, maybe our hearts are turned a little bit more towards this around the month of December. We've noticed it in our own lives. Maybe you've seen it in the lives of others. But that is this idea of God, the compassionate. Because you have God, the deliverer. And that is, if you, if you just kind of follow with me the idea of this, the, the deliverer last week was the what that God is doing. So what is God up to? What has God done? What, what is it all that he's doing throughout history and redemptive history in the Gospels, not only the Old Testament, but then in the New? What is God doing? This week, I want to talk about the why. In that same vein of idea, why does God do the things that he does? Why is God compassionate to us at all? And I think we have to reframe our minds before we go any further, this idea of why, because I think when we talk about the compassion of God, there's this mindset that we just seem to have. There's this idea that we say, when I say God sent his only son to rescue the world, God sent his only son, Jesus, to die for the sins of the world. We have this, I don't know, this mindset that creeps up, myself included, where we think, well, yeah, that's what God does. I, I, I love that, Pastor, you said that, amen, God sent his son to save the world, but that's, what God, that's who he is, that's what God does. And in one sense, that is who we have come to know him as. God the compassionate, but in a very other real sense, it's easy for us in this culture to believe that God owed the world a rescue plan. That God owed the world, he was obligated to respond to how we acted in our sin that had brought darkness into this world. And, and I don't know if you've maybe are just realizing it, but I've noticed it in my own life, it's just in the way we think about God, we think in this way of we are entitled to the rescue plan because that's who God is. But this morning, I want to reframe maybe our mentality towards his forgiveness. Because if I were to ask you point blank, if I just looked, we had a conversation, if I just asked you, what does God owe you? It got a little quiet in this thing. If I asked you, what does God owe you? What, what does God have to do in order to be God? We all know the churchy answer, and that is nothing, right? He is God all by himself. That is just God. He doesn't owe me anything. But if we were to look honestly at our mentality and our attitude towards God, I think we would come to realize that there are certain things and giftings and relationships and things in our lives that if they were taken away from us, it would cause us to seriously question our idea of who God is. Is he really who I thought he was? Is he really the God that I thought he was? Whether deliberate or not, many of us have drawn these lines in the sand. We have these, these un, unquestionable, these, these uncrossable, these lines we've drawn that if God were to cross them, it would cause us to question him. We reconsider our conclusions about him. It's kind of like the guy who said, well, if that's who God is, then I don't believe in him. As if that's an option. As if we're talking about the thought of God, the idea of God, instead of the reality of him. 
And so I want to kind of reframe our idea. It's easy for us to come to the reality of God's compassion, especially at Christmas time, and not be awed by it. It's easy to kind of skip over it on our way to the what. We skip over the why. On our way to the, the miracles and the great signs and wonders, we skip over why God is compassionate to begin with. And honestly, it's a little bit scary for us, but it's easy to even feel entitled to it. Job found himself in this place, by the way, at the end of the book of Job. Job, if you don't know in the Bible, Job loses everything. He loses his family. He loses his houses. He loses his businesses, his riches, most of his friends. He loses all of these things. And Job comes to the end of his story and he is frustrated with God. Now, we know what's going on here. We know it's a test. And God, in the Bible, we see that Job passes the test, right? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We know Job passes the test, but Job is frustrated with God. And so he comes to God. He he puts on the front in front of everybody else that Job is a man after God's own heart. But when he is praying, Job comes to God with this long list of frustrations. And he believes that God owes him answers. That he has lived uprightly. That he has done what is good. And he believes. So he comes to God with this list of questions. And honestly, in the most frustrating turn, I think for us as humans, God doesn't answer his questions with answers. He answers with questions. And so Job comes with his list of things and God just kind of swipes him out of the way. And he just begins to ask Job questions. Job, where were you when I created everything? And it probably got quiet back then too. It got quiet in that, in Job's church back then. He's like, Job, when's the last time you controlled the morning? Was it yesterday, Job? Was it the day before? Like when was the last time you caused the sun to rise, Job? Job, when's the last time you created the world with the precision That I created it. Job, when's the last time that you held the entire universe together? When was it, Job? Was it after coffee? When, Job? And Job is coming to God with these questions of things he doesn't know. And God reminds Job of something that he forgot. Job, I don't owe you anything. And Job is coming with these questions. And honestly, it's a harsh, harsh word to hear. It's a harsh word to preach in this culture. He comes to Job. Job, I... I'm bigger than you, Job. My ways are higher than yours, Job. My thoughts are higher than yours, Job. You can trust me, Job, and my plans are good. And I promise you, Job, that you can't trust, but I don't owe you anything. And this is probably, if I had to just rank them, this is probably one of the top, most incredibly difficult things to understand. And it's probably one of the least popular things to preach. Because last week, right, was plague and frogs and the army of Pharaoh drowns in the Red Sea. Merry Christmas, everybody. And this week is joy to the world. God owes you nothing. Come on, somebody. It's going to be great. And so come back for week three. It's going to be incredible. I don't know. We just have a great time. But it's really difficult to wrap our minds around this idea because there's something about us that believes that God is in our debt in some way and he is not. That somehow he owed us a rescue plan, that he owed us a response. And we get to these junctures in redemptive history and God acts compassionately, not because he has to, but because he loves us. And I love the way the Jesus uh, Storybook Bible puts this. This was, we would play this on the audiobook for our two sons when they were growing up, when they'd eat breakfast or whatever. We'd have this playing uh, for us in our kitchen out of one of those little smart speakers that listens to everything you say and sells it to Big Brother. We had one of those. It's great, everybody, all right? I'm on, I'm on board. But we would play this Jesus Storybook Bible. It's not really a translation. It's more of a, a children's commentary. But I love it because it ties every verse, every story from the Old Testament to the New. It ties them all into this redemptive arc that God has for humanity, into his plan. And it always ends with this some kind of culmination of how it fits into the redemption of Jesus. And I love the way it does it in Genesis because it's talking about Adam and Eve. 
and how they are now leaving the garden after having sinned. And it is a dark moment. I think we skip over this moment in history because we just know it so well. This is a dark, dark moment. And they're leaving the garden and they're being cast out because of their sin. And God, not because he has to, but because of his compassion, God clothes them. And then I want to read it out of here because then this is how the tie-in, this is the way it puts it. It promises them that the serpent's head will be crushed. And it speaks to them. And watch this in the storybook Bible. It says, it will not always be so. I'll come to rescue you. And when I do, I'm going to battle against the snake. I'll get rid of the sin and the dark and the sadness that you let in here. I'm coming back for you. And he would. One day God himself would come. And then we read in the Bible, in the Old Testament, God initiates this relationship with the pagan Abram who becomes Abraham, the father of many sons, and many sons says, Father Abraham, you know the story, right? And he probably makes this promise to him that you'll be the father of many nations, and through you the whole world will be blessed. And then we saw last week, those descendants are now caught in slavery in Egypt, and how God comes, not only sees, not only hears, but he delivers his people. He intervenes on their behalf. He listens to these people on this out of compassion, not because he has to. And that's when we come now to the Christmas story, the passages we're going to consider this morning, What we see here is God answers the prayers of his people. God sees the plight of his people stuck in this moral darkness. He sees us in our brokenness and he acts on our behalf, but not because he's obligated to. And so when we look at the compassion of God, we come to this understanding. If we're going to reframe our minds, the fact that he acts at all is compassionate. The fact that he does anything at all is compassionate. So we see God's story, not as just a story at Christmas time, but is the story of Christmas It's God, the compassion. This is the why. So three quick points for us before we close today. Just three quick things as we look at this character of God, the compassion. Jot down if you're taking notes. The first one is his compassion is driven by his mercy. His compassion is driven. God intervenes in the lives of his people, but it's motivated by his mercy. Watch Mary's song in the book of Luke. When she's told by the angel, you're going to have the Christ child. This is what's going to happen. And he's going to redeem his children. He's going to redeem his people from their sins. Watch this, what Mary sings in this Luke chapter 1. He says, for he is mighty and has done great things for me. And holy is his name and his mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation, he's shown strength with his arm. Scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty and exalted the humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich sent away empty. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. In remembrance of his mercy, God acted. In remembrance of his mercy, God had compassion. The story at Christmas is the compassion of God. It's the compassion of God to his people. He fills the hungry, exalts those of humble estate. It's in his compassion. You see it in Isaiah chapter 30. It says, therefore, the late Lord waits to be gracious to you. And he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For he's a God of justice and blessed are all those who wait for him. It's his compassion. And then you see in the other half of the story in the Gospels in Luke, Mary's cousin Elizabeth is also going to have a baby, John the Baptist. And the father, before John is born, the angel appears to Zechariah, the father, in the temple. And he tells him, Zechariah, your prayers have been answered. You're going to have a son. And in one of the most befuddling moments of Scripture, Zechariah looks at this angel and doesn't believe him. And just to kind of give you an idea of the context, where Zechariah is at this moment, he is standing in the temple Twice a year as a high priest, twice a year he would have his chance to go in. 
and to attend into the Holy of Holies. This would be a big deal where Zechariah is standing. And an angel of the Lord appears to him, and he tells him, Zechariah, you're going to have a son. Now, Zechariah is in this, this place, and I don't know about you, I, I have prayed many times in my prayers, God, would you do this for me? God, I just, I don't know the decision to make. God, I don't know the words to say. God, I don't know this. Would you send an angel to tell me exactly what your will is? Would you be as clear? I don't know if you've ever prayed that. As clear as possible. Zechariah gets that. And he won't believe. Anyway, and the only thing I can imagine, the only thing I can come up with is that Zechariah has prayed this thing until he has prayed out and he has given up. Because Zechariah is an old man at this point in Scripture. He is an old, he is decades and decades. He has prayed this prayer and he has prayed this prayer and he has all prayed out. And so when an angel appears in the Holy of Holies, the place in the Old Testament where heaven meets earth, he still can't believe. He has prayed this thing over and over and we see God's compassion even in this. Listen, he is coming to answer a prayer that Zechariah himself has stopped praying. You talk about the compassion of God all throughout Scripture. He is coming to answer a prayer that Zechariah himself gave up on. God is more long-suffering and faithful to a prayer than Zechariah himself is. He says, Zechariah, you're going to have a son. And after John the Baptist is born, watch this father. He opens his mouth. After his son is born, after he sees the compassion of God. After he sees what God has done, he opens his mouth. And we read a part of this in Luke 1. He says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. To give knowledge of salvation and the forgiveness of their sin because of the tender mercy of our God. Not because he was obligated. Forgiveness of their sin, not because he had to. Forgiveness of their sin, not because that's just what God does. Forgiveness of their sin because of tender mercy where the sunrise shall visit from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. He gets it now. He sees God's mercy not only on himself and his wife Elizabeth, but on God's people. God's compassion is driven by his mercy. Point number two, jot it down. His compassion is real. And I had a lot more eloquent ways to say this, but I threw them all out, everybody. This is the point, all right? God's compassion is real. Because I think sometimes we struggle with that. We see underhanded or, or we see like hidden motives or we see like maybe it's not as genuine as they really make it out. No, God's compassion is real because there are two ways of looking at compassion. There is sympathy and there is empathy. And I tried to come up with an analogy uh, that wouldn't get me into trouble, but I couldn't. And so here we go, everybody. All right, this is my, my analogy for you guys. My wife, Alyssa, and I, we have a little girl named Hava. She is five years old, going on 30. Praise God. It's just amazing. But before we had Hava, my wife had to be pregnant for nine or ten months. Come on, somebody. That's just the way things work. That's how it goes. And being pregnant, I don't know if you know this, is really, really hard. Or so I've been told. Come on, somebody. It's just... <laughs> It's going to be good. So I've heard. Because you gain weight, right? You get hot. Your feet hurt. You get cramped. You get cravings. It's really, really hard. Now listen, in my role as a perfect husband, in my role as a model husband, there are some things that I need to do, right? I prop the pillows. I turn the thermostat down. Whatever the things that I do, while I am doing those things, I go out and buy watermelon and peanut butter and hamburgers, whatever it is, right? I buy I, those are the things. There are a lot of things that I'm supposed to be doing. There are things that I can say while I am doing those things. You understand? Follow with me here, everybody, all right? 
Husbands, you already know where I'm going, but the rest of you just follow along with me, okay? There are things that I can say while I do the things I'm supposed to be doing. There are things I can say, right? There are things like, I am so sorry. And there are things like, I know this is all my fault. And there are things like, I understand. Like, I, 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 there's all these things. But what there are things also, and here's where you guys will all get on the same page. There are things that I cannot say. There are many things that I cannot say. And one of those is anything resembling or even approaching or sounding like, I know what you're going through. I understand what it is that you are experiencing. I know exactly how you feel. There are things that you can never, ever say. I said this once in my life. By the way, when we were having our first son, Elijah, in the delivery room, I said something like, I understand how it feels to a room of four women. And by God's grace, I stand before you today. All right, everybody? I was sleepy. I was delusional. I was sleep deprived. It was other thing. <laughs> it did not go well. And so I have learned. And now I have wisdom to share with all of you guys. Because listen to me. I can have sympathy, but I cannot have empathy. I can be sympathetic. And this widespread view of God is so wrong. This idea of sympathy, that God is sympathetic, that God feels sorry for us in what we are going through. He feels bad for us when things go wrong. But that is not compassion. Compassion is, means co-suffering, to suffer with, as if you yourself are experiencing, to be with someone as if you are also going through it. In Exodus, when God tells Moses he's going to rescue the Israelites, when he says this to Moses, he says, I've come down and I've heard the cries of my people. I've come down, but still he was this cloud on the mountain to them. This God up there and we down here. This idea that God had come down, this idea, but it was this, this cloud on the mountain. But that is what Christmas is. That is what Emmanuel means, God with us. That he didn't send Moses this time. That God didn't just step over us and go on about his business. That God himself came down. That is the beauty of Christmas. Emmanuel, not sympathy, but compassion. Because Jesus Christ became a human being. Because God himself walked with us. That God himself has compassion on us. Not because he has to, but because of his mercy. That his compassion is genuine. That his compassion is real. And Jesus tells this story about the father's love. He tells the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. How a man had two sons. How a man had two sons and the younger one took his inheritance and he went to a faraway land and he wasted it. And maybe you're familiar with the story, but this young son, he falls into probably the darkest hole he's ever been in his life. And he realizes that he has nothing. And he starts to even envy the pigs for the slop that they're eating. And for this moment, he finally comes to this clarity in his mind and he realizes what he has done and how far his life has come. And so he says, I'll just return to my father and I'll tell him that I wasted everything he gave me. And he says that I'll just, I'll just beg him if I could just become a servant in his house. In this moment, and so he begins to trust one foot after the other and he comes back to the father and Jesus recounts this moment when he's returning. And we're going to read it together in Luke 15. It says, he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off. And Jesus is giving this to his audience. He's saying, listen to me. You want to know the heart of the father. You want to know the compassion of God. 
You want to know what mercy actually means, not obligation, not because he asked you. You want to know what God's compassion actually means. Watch this. While the son was a long way off, his father saw him. And he felt compassion. And he ran and he embraced him and he kissed him. And Jesus is looking at them and he's saying, this is the heart of God. Not because he has to. Not because he's obligated to his compassion and his mercy. The compassion of God. You know, in the 1800s, when Noah Webster wrote his dictionary, he uses this verse as the example of the word compassion. He lists this verse because it shows God's, God's overwhelming mercy and compassion towards us. Not obligation, not just this is just what God does. No, this is his compassion. It's incredible. And then Paul writes in Ephesians about the compassion of God. And he begins to say that you once were dead in your trespasses. You once were dead in your sins. Speaking about all of us, lest you think you're too holy for this. Well, Paul was speaking about, no, all of us were dead in our trespasses. All of us were dead in our sins. And then he says in verse 4, watch this, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loves us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So by grace you have been saved. In verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far, You who were once prodigals, you who were the son who squandered everything that was given to you, who wasted everything, every opportunity, who wasted every act and shred of love that was shown, who wasted it all, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That is the beauty of Christmas, that the compassion of God is real. And we are called as children of God. And we have been shown a great compassion, and so then we show a great compassion to others. Not as sympathetic observers, but as those who have been shown a great mercy, then we are merciful to those in our lives. This is where it turns for us. This is where the story of Christmas stops being something we just stand in awe of and something that we live. This idea that we have been shown compassion, where it changes, that if this is true, it affects the way that we live our lives. It affects the way that we love others because there's always this this general theme in the Bible that our vertical relationship affects our horizontal relationships. That our relationship with God should affect the way that we treat others in our lives. And so if this is true, if we have received such a compassion, such a mercy, if we have not lost the joy of our salvation, then the way we treat others will be in that same compassion. In that same mercy. And I can tell you even in my own life, this is a hard word to hear because I think we can all think of even one person this last week that we did not show compassion to. That as we go into the Christmas season and we come together with all of our loved ones and our not-so-loved ones and all those things, that we, we come together and we have these moments where we do not show the compassion that we have been shown. But this is where it turns. In Colossians, Paul says, as God's chosen ones, then put on hearts of compassion. Put on this idea. We are called to love like that. And the best way that I can put it, the way that honestly hits the deepest for me, and you can take it or leave it, is we are called to love like it is personal. And it is honestly, it's interesting to me. There were times in my life, and a lot of times, honestly, early on, where I would watch commercials or I would hear sermons preached about, about drug addicts or about addictions or about things that people just couldn't shake. And I would just kind of pass it on by. 
I would just kind of like, just kind of flip through and think, oh, well, that's terrible. And that poor person. And I would see the, the sides that they would talk about all these different things. And, and I would just kind of pass it on. But it wasn't until I had a friend, someone I count as a brother, who had this secret addiction, honestly, that just took control of his life, that destroyed every area, every relationship, that just took a hold of him until it actually became real for me. And so then when I would hear a sermon or I would see a commercial about drug addiction, I would see these things, you would completely lose me. Like all I could think is where that person was or what they might be doing. When we'd have a group of friends together and they weren't there, I would think, where are they? What could they be doing at this moment or what could they be caught in or what, what emerge, what, what's happening at this moment? It becomes real. When it's your son and your daughter, when it's your friend, when it's someone close to you, that's when it becomes real. And that's the compassion we are called to have. Not sympathy. Not this idea that we're just sorry that it happened or just this idea which we are called to show the same compassion and mercy that we have been shown for others. When it's your son or your daughter, you love differently. You feel differently. You see it in a different light. That's the compassion we're called to have for others. We're supposed to love like it's personal. I told you last month of the story in our, our series, the story of the seminary students studying to be pastors, and they, they got them all together and gave them an assignment. One by one, they would send them across campus to give a message at the end about the story of the Good Samaritan. And they told a bunch of them, you're in a big hurry. We need you to get across campus and give this story about compassion to a group of people waiting to hear it. And so then they had this test set up. They set a person in need in their path to see if they would stop, see if they would just go on about their day, go and give their sermon, or if they would stop and help the person in need. And we talked about this tragedy that 90% of those in a hurry stepped over the person who was in need to give the message about the Good Samaritan. 90% who cared more about giving the message than they cared about living the message. Cared more about being the messenger than they cared about living lives that actually showed the message they were preaching. Let that never be us, church. Let us never care more about that. This Christmas, I promise you, I love Christmas. We're going to do it big. We're going we're gonna to have times where we spend time with family. And we're going to light trees and we're going to sing songs and we're going to eat good food. And we're going to do it all big. But let it never be us that we are more marked by consumerism than we are by compassion. Let it never be us that we stepped over the poor on our way to spend let it never be us, church. Let it never be said of us that we gave up on compassion because we had so many other things that we wanted to do at Christmas time. That on our way to eat together, we stepped over the hungry. That on our way to spend time with family, we stepped over the lonely. That on our way to enjoy peace, we somehow stepped over the oppressed. Let it never be said of us, church. That we're going to show compassion that we have received. How great a mercy God has shown to us. And who are we if we will not show that mercy to others? Who are we if we will not show compassion to others? And so in this Christmas time, I promise you, we're going to do it all. We're going to enjoy this time. But we are going to live lives of compassion to others. We are called to real compassion. And in that idea, our last thought of the day today, jot it down if you're taking notes, and that is God's compassion moves him to action. In this same vein of thought, he doesn't sit on the sidelines. He doesn't, he doesn't sit just feeling sorry for us. No, it moves him to action. Watch this in Isaiah chapter 9, this prophecy about Jesus coming. It says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. The people 
in darkness. And the Hebrew there is this death shadow. The people who sat in the very shadow of death have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. God promises deliverance is coming. He promises deliverance. Jesus is born and we see the compassion of God in every act that Jesus takes. You see his compassion, but you see it drive him to action. Jesus looks at the 5,000 who are hungry and he feeds them. It says his heart was filled with compassion and he feeds them. It says he looks at those who were sick, who were brought to him, the lame and the blind and the deaf. And he's filled with compassion and so he touches and he heals them. You never see Jesus was filled with compassion and he went his way really thinking things over. You never see Jesus was filled with compassion and so he turned off his TV and went out to eat. You never see that. You see Jesus was filled with compassion and so he acted. Listen to me. He never stopped preaching the kingdom of heaven, but what he preached and what he practiced went hand in hand. He was filled with compassion for people and so he acted. Filled with compassion and so he healed. Filled with compassion and so he loved. Filled with compassion. Let that be us. Filled with the mercy and the compassion. We read the stories of Jesus. He touched the leper and he heals them. He preaches and he practices. He begins to live out this calling. Let's live with compassion. There's a quote I love that, honestly, I I couldn't find a better place to put it than right here. And the idea is that if you won't practice, you might as well give the clarinet to a kid who will. Listen to me, church. We cannot preach compassion if we will not live it. We cannot preach compassion to others if we will not live it. We cannot preach the mercy of God if we will not show it. We cannot. We can't love others if the only example of that love is that we just feel a sympathetic sadness for them in our minds. The story of Christmas is that Jesus himself came down. And so this Christmas, we're going to put some things before you. We call them mission opportunities around here, but we're going to put some things in the coming weeks just in front of you. From Albania to Haiti, from India to Cuba, all around the world, just opportunities that we have to reach out and to love those. Opportunities right here in our own city. To show compassion At Christmas, because we're going to do it. I love Christmas and we're going to have the gathering to do it all, but we cannot do it at the expense of those in need. We have a chance to turn compassion into action this Christmas because we're called to be compassionate because we serve a God who is compassionate. That 2,000 years ago, he didn't send Moses. He didn't step over us in our time of need. No, God himself came down. And we celebrate this at Christmas time, that Jesus himself was born. That God himself saw us in our darkness. He saw us a long way off. And in his compassion, in his mercy, he came to rescue us. Would you bow your heads with prayer for me? Lord, I thank you that you are making us compassionate. Lord, I thank you that you are speaking to our hearts, that you are turning us more and more into the image of your son, that you are creating hearts of compassion inside of us. And Lord, I thank you that you have placed us in the lives that we live, in the people that we interact with. You have placed us in opportunities to show mercy and compassion this Christmas. Lord, that there are people who across our path, there are people, Lord, that you have called us to show mercy to.
Lord, let us never shirk away. Lord, let us never shrink back. Let us show compassion as we have been showed. And we thank you for a God of compassion who has shown us what mercy truly is. And church, just continue praying right now. I want to give one final invitation today. And maybe you're here with us this morning or maybe you're watching online and this is the first time you've ever even heard about the compassion of God. Maybe your entire life you've been told that God is mad at you or that God could never love a person like you or that God's mercy is for everybody else but it couldn't possibly be for you. Listen to me, if you've never heard it before or maybe you've never believed it, I want you to know something. Listen to me right now. God loves you more than you could possibly imagine. And he wants you. And so I don't know what you've walked through. Maybe parents who didn't want you. Maybe friends who left you or stabbed you in the back. Maybe an entire world who wouldn't show you mercy or compassion. But listen to me. God himself wants you. He loves you. And he's calling you to a new life. He's calling you. And so I want to give an invitation today. Not to join a church, not to join a religion. I want to invite you today to follow Jesus. So right where you are, if you want to make that decision, if you want to surrender, you say, now's my chance. I want to follow Jesus if that's you. We want to pray with you. Every head is bowed. listen to me there is nothing I say on a Sunday that is more important than this moment because it is my honor and my joy to begin to teach things about God's word it is my honor and my joy to share with you about God's compassion about God's deliverance and about all these things but in this moment I'm just inviting you to experience it for yourself To know a God who loves us, to know a God who rescued us, to know him for yourself. Because you can hear it a thousand times, but I promise you, his redemption and his love is for you. Every single one of us was caught in darkness. Every single one of us was lost in the trespasses of our sins. Every single one of us was dead in our sin and needed the redemption and the rescue of God. So right now is your moment. You say, that's me. I want to follow Jesus. Right now, our church, we have declared, we will pray this with every person who wants to pray it. If right now you want to make that decision, say these words. Say this, declare it for your life. Say, Jesus, forgive me of all of my sin, all my mistakes. I believe you died on the cross. I believe you rose again. And I make you Lord of my life. In Jesus' name I pray. And all God's church said amen and amen. Come on church, can we celebrate with those who made a decision?